No matter how far you run from them, childhood tragedies have a way of catching back up with you. So is true of elite scuba diver Veronica West, who is about to encounter something unexplainable at the bottom of the ocean, something that will draw her back to her home on Sinclair Island, Maine. There, she'll lead a dangerous rescue mission to the bottom of the Bay of Fundy, home of the world's largest tides, and something horrific down in the depths. Listen to Narcosis, the latest horror fiction show on Realm's premier horror channel, Undertow. Narcosis is available now. Search for Undertow or Narcosis wherever podcasts are served. Kickoff for Super Bowl 34. The Titans-Rams 2000 Super Bowl, an instant classic. Hours after the game, two men were stabbed in the street, accused of being in the middle, the greatest linebacker in NFL history. Ray Lewis and two friends are charged with murder. The nation's eyes were glued to their televisions. The trial concluded and the verdicts came back. Not guilty. What you can learn from all this is that big cases make for big mistakes. Look what happened to O.J. Simpson. And look what happened to Ray Lewis. Lewis went on to have a Hall of Fame career, but questions around that night in Atlanta still remain. So what do you think they're hiding? They know what happened. They know exactly what happened. After 20 years, it's time to get to the bottom line truth. From Tenderfoot TV, I'm Tim Livingston, and this is The Raven. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For ad-free listening and early access, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus on tenderfootplus.com. like to be where I'm at right now. It's like one foot in the grave and one foot out of the grave. You're living, but you're not living. And that's what it feels like to me. I mean, you're existing, but you're not existing. Like nobody cares. A couple of weeks ago, at the end of May, Lee Clark marked his 25th year since that day he walked into the Floyd County Jail and was arrested for the murder of Brian Bowling. That was his last day as a free man. Back then, it had seemed impossible for him to imagine that this many years later, he'd still be behind bars. I couldn't see myself facing this, being in here for a life sentence for something I didn't do. And I told myself, being I said, your life's over with, man. You're not going to make it. You ain't going to last through this no way. You might as well go ahead and kill yourself and get it over with. But I didn't do any of that. I made myself keep pushing forward mainly for my family, more than anything. Lee was sentenced to life in prison, but his sentence does carry the possibility of parole. In fact, his case was before the parole board earlier this year, and he was hopeful that maybe this time, things would go different than they had before. They didn't, though. He recently found out that his parole application was denied. Another setback in the long line of setbacks he's had since he went to prison. And I'm going to tell you right now, it ain't been an easy road. It's been a hard road for me. And I have got to a point now where I'm in some easier prisons than what I were in. But when I first started doing this, I was in some real hell holes. And I went through some real hard times. But I don't know if you say it's by the grace of God or whatever, dumb luck, whatever. I don't know. But... I've made it. I've made it this far, so I'm just hoping I can make it the rest of the way. Hi, my name is Susan Simpson. I'm an attorney and podcaster, and previously I hosted the Undisclosed podcast. Hi, I'm Jacinda Davis, and I'm a true crime TV producer. Last year, Susan and I decided to team up and reinvestigate the murder of Brian Bowling. Along with Kevin Fitzpatrick, president of Red Marble Media, we decided to launch Proof. You can listen to Proof like you would any podcast, and you can follow us everywhere with the handle at ProofCrimePod and on our website, ProofCrimePod.com. Thanks for listening, and welcome to Proof. Lee Clark has never given up on trying to prove his innocence. But he had run out of ideas for how to do so. He'd appealed his conviction back in 1999, and the Supreme Court of Georgia had agreed that there had been a lot of errors made at his trial. 
but the court concluded these errors were all harmless and his appeal was denied. After that, Lee couldn't afford to hire another attorney. So at one point, out of desperation, he decided to represent himself. He filed his own motion with the court. This is back when I was at Smith State Prison, but I never got to argue none of this stuff. So I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Oh, you did a pro se. Yes, I didn't know nothing. And I'm sitting there in the courtroom looking stupid as hell. So you did file something. Yeah, I did file, but it didn't do nothing because hell, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. With no routes available to Lee through the court system, he thought that maybe if he could just explain to the right person that he'd been wrongfully convicted, they'd be able to alert the proper authorities and get things fixed. Try to talk to people that you think might matter that might say something to somebody, you know what I'm saying? Like, hey, look, y'all got this dude locked up some shit he didn't even do. It's been no, no lawyers, nothing like that. It's been people that work for the prisons. I've sat for talk to counselors. Just like when I started, when I was real young in this, and I thought, well, this might do me so good to say something to these people. Well, I sat there and tell my story, Susan. They sit there and look at me like I was just straight full of shit. Telling people he was innocent hadn't done any good. So, eventually, he decided to try to find a lawyer who didn't care that he couldn't afford to pay them. I said, look, dude, I said, you got these lawyers out here that do stuff on pro bono. These people don't even want no money. They're doing it because, they're, because they know it's the right thing to do. I said, well, we pursue something like that. Try to talk to some of these people. And that's when I tried the Innocent Project that one time. And that's when they wrote me back, told me, oh, we can't help you because your case ain't DNA-related. Lee applied to the Georgia Innocence Project and the Innocence Project in New York, but both told him that they couldn't take his case. So that was that. Lee was out of options, and the years kept ticking by. There was only one thing left to do that he could think of to improve his chances of ever going home. I started working out, started trying to get myself a better health. Right now, I'm in better health than I was in my 20s. Keep myself in the best health I can stay in and hope to walk out of here one day. Kane's story has also tried to prove his innocence through the court system. In 2003, his family got the money together for an attorney who brought a habeas petition on Kane's behalf. The petition argued that Kane had been given ineffective assistance of counsel by his trial attorney. Yeah, 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 I went to the Haven's Corpus And Barkley admitted he was ineffective? Yeah, he admitted. He admitted on the stand. He said, I'll never forget, he said, I didn't think you was guilty then. I don't think you're guilty now. I just didn't represent him effectively, and I'm sorry. That's exactly what he said. After Kane's habeas petition was denied, he decided he'd try to represent himself. He filed motions with the court, asking for his conviction to be overturned and that he be given access to evidence that he believed would prove his innocence. In Floyd County Superior Court, after I filed the, uh, the motion to try to get him exhumed, they um, sent me back a letter from uh, Judge uh, Robert Walter at the time talking about that no motions, papers, or reports when the bus-style case will be submitted to this court. It would all be... Uh, and back and return to sender and everything else will not be heard none of it. I wasn't Which aware they were allowed to do that. No, that's what I was about to say. That's, that's denying me access to court. In the case file at the court in Floyd County, there's a signed order instructing the court to reject any further attempts by Kane's story to challenge his conviction. Any filings from him are to be sent back, unopened. But Kane had hoped that if his request for an exhumation was granted, a medical examiner would finally be able to do an autopsy and finally be able to confirm that Brian had been killed by a contact shot and not, as the prosecution had alleged, by a shot fired from a distance. I mean, unfortunately, they already dug the body up once and no one seemed to look at that to confirm it. Yeah, if there was an autopsy, we'd know for sure. But there was no autopsy, so there's no confirmation. 
it is interesting. Like, I, I, I also worry that we're missing files, right? Like We are, 100%. That missing files that have some of these answers. Amanda was 100% convinced that Brian's body was sent to a crime lab. It was not. It wasn't just Amanda who was certain an autopsy had been performed. The rest of Brian's family thought the same thing. They all told us in separate interviews that yes, Brian had been autopsied. And yes, the autopsy had confirmed he'd been murdered. It's possible that Brian's family had just been remembering things wrong. But they'd all been so confident there'd been an autopsy. And they'd all been so obviously confused when we told them that no, Brian had not been autopsied. Plus, there's the fact that it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever that an autopsy hadn't been done. Murder victims are always autopsied. It's not the kind of thing that investigators simply forget to do. So what happened with Brian Bowling? Why wasn't there an autopsy? Well, because the county coroner decided there wouldn't be one. In one of my very first conversations with Lee Clark, he'd mentioned this coroner to me. Corner was Craig Burns, wasn't it? Yeah, the corner was Craig Burns. And if I ain't mistaken, he might have got caught in some stuff. I think he got caught up in something. Hmm. You might want to look into that. Lee was not mistaken. Craig Burns had indeed gotten caught up in something. In 1999, he'd ended up in state prison on 36 charges of theft and racketeering, and then did some more time in federal prison on three charges of credit card fraud. But Burns hadn't been arrested until a year after Lee and Kane's trial. And at first, it didn't occur to me that the coroner's later legal troubles could have any relevance to our investigation. As I learned more about this case, though, I realized that all of this, the murder investigation, Lee's and Kane's arrest, their conviction, all of it kind of began with Craig Burns. In the wake of Brian's shooting, Sergeant Dallas Battle was initially confident he'd been killed by a self-inflicted gunshot wound. It wasn't until two days later, when he got a call from Craig Burns, that Battle decided this case was actually a potential homicide. We don't know exactly what Burns said. Battle wasn't allowed to testify to that at trial, because that would be hearsay. But whatever Burns told him, it caused him to head down to the funeral home where Brian's body was being held, so that they could inspect the body together. As a result of what they observed at the funeral home, Battle and Burns concluded two things. First, that the shot that killed Brian had been fired from a distance, and therefore, Brian had been murdered. And second, there was no point in doing an autopsy, because an autopsy wouldn't tell them anything useful anyway. Now, the second thing is simply untrue. An autopsy would have determined conclusively whether or not Brian was killed by a contact wound. And based on the blurry photos of Brian that were taken by Craig Burns at the funeral home, which showed that the inside of the gunshot wound had a blackened appearance, it certainly looks like this was a contact shot. At trial, though, Burns was able to explain this away. He testified that the blackened area was actually a granulated embalming powder that was applied to stop the body from leaking while they inspected it. I was skeptical, though, of Burns' explanation. And we asked ballistics expert Ronald Scott what it would mean if Craig Burns had been lying about this. Assuming that this is not mortician's powder, what would that tell you about the, the nature of the shot that he received? Well, if it, was, if it was soot and if it was charring or thermal damage, I would say that that's an indication of a contact gunshot wound. Burns described the substance that caused the blackened appearance as granulated powder or a hardening compound. None of the experts we spoke to could think of a substance that would cause this effect. But without knowing exactly what substance it was, they couldn't say for sure. The only person who could answer that question was Craig Burns himself, and he wasn't talking. We'd reached out to him every way we could think of. Finally, he replied to an email we'd sent. I don't remember the case, he said, so there's nothing more I can tell you. We've told you all before about Rocket Money, a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. 
Well, one of our listeners signed up and it turned out to be a great thing that she did because she did have a service she was signed up for and forgotten about, pet insurance, which couldn't have been better timing because her dog, Whiskey, who is super cute and a retired sled dog, recently had a cancer diagnosis. But thanks to Rocket Money, she realized that she still had pet insurance that she'd forgotten she was paying for. And that'll go a long way towards helping Whiskey with those vet bills. Usually Rocket Money helps you save money by finding subscriptions you no longer want. But in this case, it helped this woman find a subscription that she needed and wanted. We're all rooting for Whiskey. He's just so happy for Whiskey, he can't help it. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash proof. That's rocketmoney.com slash proof. Rocketmoney.com slash proof. Hashtag Team Whiskey. If you're listening to this show, then I'm going to guess you're a fan of true crime podcasts. So in the mornings, grab your favorite mug and pour yourself a dose of spine-tingling true crime every a.m. with Morning Cup of Murder. It's a short daily show that's the perfect podcast to incorporate into your morning routine. In less than 15 minutes, you'll hear about a true crime that took place on today's date in history. Each day's dark history lesson will kickstart your morning with intriguing tales of murder, abduction, serial killers, cults, and more. So, pour yourself a piping hot cup of murder every single morning with Morning Cup of Murder. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. New England is known for its charming towns, comforting foods, and of course its historical contributions. But the Down East region can have a dark side. I'm investigative journalist Kylie Lowe. And on my weekly podcast, Dark Down East, I dig into both decades-old and modern-day cases from my home state of Maine and the greater New England area. In each episode of Dark Down East, I seek insight from law enforcement officials, family members, and other loved ones who are both deeply familiar with the cases and the individuals at the heart of them. Join me as I unveil intricacies of these stories that are often overlooked, honor the grit of those searching for justice, and shine a light on cases that you aren't hearing on other podcasts. Listen to Dark Down East now, wherever you're listening. Since we couldn't talk to Craig Barnes directly, we tried to learn more about the corner system in general. One of the people I spoke to was Bob Rowe. He'd been listening to this podcast, and after hearing about the role the coroner had played in the case... He sent us a message about his own experiences as a county coroner in Georgia. Every coroner is elected, and basically your job is to investigate any death that is not attended by a physician. Bob Rowe had been working as a paramedic and EMS instructor in a small county in South Georgia when the previous coroner announced that he would not be running for re-election. I had all these people started coming to me, you should run for it, you should run for it. And I just kind of laughed. I said, well, maybe. I thought almost like a, a, a lark, honestly. And so I said, sure, I'll do that. And I filled it out. And then apparently no one else had ran. So I got elected, which totally shocked me. The coroner is tasked with establishing the cause and manner of all suspicious or unobserved deaths in the county to determine how someone died and whether that death had been a homicide, suicide, natural, or accidental death. So what qualifications do you need to have as a coroner to make this kind of weighty determination? Well, none. You just have to be elected and go to a week-long training course. After that, you can do what you want. Susan, it's really crazy because how you operate is up to you. No requirement to send bodies to the state medical examiner's office. They have their own investigators, people who do have the experience, different certifications, and of course, they're forensic pathologists, but you literally have to reach out to them. So if a coroner never wanted to send the body to the crime lab, they wouldn't have to? They wouldn't have to. Under Georgia law, when someone dies as a result of violence or by suicide, The coroner is required to order an inquiry by a medical examiner. But there's nothing to enforce this, really. If the coroner decides to skip the postmortem, then no postmortem is done. Being a coroner is a hard job, though. 
You get called out at all hours of the day and night to attend to bodies, investigate deaths, and fill up paperwork. And the compensation for this is minimal. I think $150 a month, whether you saw a body or saw 50, no expenses, you paid for your gas, you did all that. So I was actually losing money in the process, right? And then eventually just got to where I said, I can't keep doing this. In counties where the coroner is not a salaried position, the pay is often not enough to cover the coroner's own out-of-pocket expenses, let alone compensate them for their time. So who would even want this kind of job? You have someone who, if they're going to do it, it's going to be out of the goodness of their heart, essentially. Or it's going to be because they get a kickback. The larger counties, it was busy enough that it was a full-time job. But for the smaller counties, um, yeah, I could see that. And like I said, I thought, well, let's help them out. And when I got in there, I went, man, this is an English job. Counties can choose how they want their coroner to be paid, and it varies from county to county. Some counties pay their coroners better than others. So it really kind of depends on the amount of people that are involved and really the population. Floyd County paid by the body. Ah, uh, yep, yep. I do remember hearing that too. Yeah, some people. Gosh, that almost sounds like that would lead you to want to come up with bodies, doesn't it? Yeah, it does actually. <laughs> just, do, you, oh, do you know anything about the Floyd County coroner? I, I don't, other than what um, I heard you guys saying the other day on the podcast. Yeah, he um, he went to prison. When you pay by the body, you got an incentive to... Oh my God, you're serious. I was joking. <laughs> oh no, I'm dead serious. In Floyd County, the more deaths the coroner investigates, the more the coroner gets paid. And when Craig Burns was coroner, there were a lot of deaths investigated. In fact, there had been a huge increase, at least on paper, in the number of deaths where a medical examiner was called in to do a postmortem. It's one of the things that he went to prison for. So, Quick Burns had every incentive to do more autopsies, not fewer. And the fact that he didn't autopsy Brian Bowling made no sense at all. The only person who might be able to explain why no autopsy was done in this case would be Craig Burns himself. One evening, I got a phone call from a number I didn't recognize. I was pretty sure it was going to be a spam call, but I answered anyway. Hello, is Susan speaking? Susan? Hi, who is this? My name is Craig Burns. Hi, Mr. Burns. How are you doing? I am good. I am returning a call to you, and I am going to see in what limited capacity I can try to help you. The limited capacity, Burns explained, was due to the fact that he simply didn't recall anything about this case. From Dallas Battle's testimony, it sounds like it's when he's at the funeral home with you that he starts thinking it's a murder. Okay. So you don't remember going with him to sort of examine the body and try and determine? I honestly don't, because that would be such a normal thing for me that it would not stand out in my mind. Did you know Dallas Battle? I did know Dallas. Dallas was a good man. I never had a, a problem out of Dallas. I never had, to me, he was always humble, and to me, he was always willing to learn from me, and I was very willing to learn from him. Craig Burns did remember that he later helped exhume Brian Bowling's body. He was there to supervise when they dug him up. But that time that he and Dallas Battle examined Brian's body at the funeral home and decided not to do an autopsy, well, that he didn't recall a thing about. I explained to Craig Burns why he was such an important part of this case and why I'd been so interested in hearing from him. Your testimony was pretty much crucial because that was the proof that it could have been the guy out the window who did it and that it was not from someone inside the room. And, you know, it's so unusual for me to testify in a case like this. Uh, When you actually told me the first time that I had testified, I thought she's got me confused with somebody else. The only reason Craig Burns had needed to testify in this case was because he hadn't requested an autopsy, which meant that there was no medical examiner for the prosecution to call instead. 
So if Prosecutor Steve Cox had wanted to show that Brian Bowling had been shot by Lee Clark standing outside of a window, then he had no choice but to use Craig Burns to try to prove it. I asked Burns what the process would have been for requesting an autopsy back then. I was wondering if maybe the bureaucratic headache of making the request could explain why he decided against doing it. Turns out, though, it would have been pretty easy. Burns told me that in Floyd County, coroners often use private doctors for postmortems, rather than using the GBI's medical examiners at the crime lab. And so if we had a case that either I felt like needed an autopsy or the officer felt like needed an autopsy, I would talk to the physician who was on call today and tell him, hey, this is what I've got downstairs. I feel like we need to post this individual. The other thing that you would always think about is I would rather spend 10 minutes telling somebody why I've done something rather than two hours on a witness stand telling somebody why I wished I had done something, if that makes sense to you. Yep. This was a point that Craig Burns made to me repeatedly. It was always better to err on the side of requesting an autopsy, he said. My theory is that I would rather spend 10 minutes on the witness stand telling the jury why I did what I did versus two hours telling the jury why I wished I had done what I'd done. And in this case... Um, I mean, it seemed odd to me that no autopsy was done, given it's a homicide. Does that seem strange to you? Not if uh, Dallas Battle was in agreement and I was in agreement. And after talking to the family, they were they were placated. They were satisfied. I can certainly see the decision not to do an autopsy to be made. It sounds like it turned to one of those cases where instead of 10 minutes to request an autopsy, you had to spend two hours on the stand explaining why you didn't get one. Well, and that's okay. As as we mature and develop in our formal education, you know, I have learned to change my decision-making process. So is it ultimately the coroner's call or the police officer's call to have an autopsy done? Police officer and coroner and the medical examiner, all three have to agree. This is not true, by the way. Under Georgia law, it's the coroner's call. In practice, this decision is usually made in consultation with law enforcement, so it makes sense that Burns would have been talking to Dallas Battle and the GBI's medical examiner. But what doesn't make sense is Burns' claim that the GBI's medical examiner would have told him he didn't need an autopsy here. If, if the medical examiner said to me, well, Craig, you know, I can see these types of problems down the road, then what I would have to do is decline LifeLink's authority to do it, to harvest organs. Is it not possible to have LifeLink involved, have the organs harvested, and then have an autopsy performed? Is it possible? Mm -hmm. Yes. Is there any value to it? Not really. You have to realize that you're not getting a complete autopsy by forensic pathologist. Craig Burns acknowledged to me that in plenty of other cases involving organ donors, he had ordered autopsies. And the experts he spoke to have all agreed that an autopsy would not have interfered with Brian's organ donation. They also told us that in this case, there would have been immense value in having an autopsy done. We've talked to a couple of pathologists who told us that if a medical examination had been done here, they that would have been an answer as to what happened to him and whether this was a distance shot or a contact wound or in between. And in, and in 2022, I would agree with you. Had we opened the head and had an autopsy been done and had the brain been looked at, then there would not be these types of questions today. And in 2022, I agree with you. In 1996, I, like I say, I don't remember the case. Can you think of another homicide case where there was not a referral for an autopsy? Independently, I cannot. Other than the the organ donation, do you recall why an autopsy wasn't done? Uh, I would give you my best 25-year guess, and that would be that it was to respect the wishes of the family that Mr. Bowling wanted to be an organ donor. 
Yeah. The family actually thought there was an autopsy done. I'm not sure why, but their memory, they told me that he was autopsied. So. Look on the death certificate and he'll tell you yes or no. The coroner's death investigation report, um, it doesn't have, it. there's nothing checked. There's like a, a, a section that says like exam type and has four options. It says none, autopsy, external only, and talks. Okay. And none of them are checked off. That's unusual. That I would have left that blank is very unusual. It should have been checked off. Can you think of a reason why there wouldn't be anything checked off? Is that just an oversight or? I honestly can't give you an answer. If it was done, if that report was filled out by uh, the the secretary at one point, uh, I had I had hired a person to do a lot of my clerical work, and if she prepared that report or typed that for me, it could have been that she missed it. I didn't know it at the time, but this was the line that Craig Burns has used before. During the investigation to his misconduct as coroner, at one point he blamed an assistant who was unfamiliar with billing procedures for some of the fraudulent invoices that were issued by his office. But, as is noted in Floyd County's investigative report, No administrative office staff for the coroner has been identified, and none is budgeted. Craig Burns did acknowledge, though, that it was indeed very strange that the report on Brian Bowling's death did not specify whether or not an autopsy had been performed. I don't think an autopsy was done. Is it possible that one was done here? Uh, again, I would have to see what's in my case file. It could have been looked at by one of the clinical pathologists. I just don't remember. Craig Burns said that although he had no memory of this case, he would have taken detailed notes about his investigation. He may have even visited the Bowling's trailer. And his notes would still be in the coroner's file today. If an autopsy really had been done here, there'd be a record of it in that file. Before Burns called me, though, I'd already made an attempt to get those records from the current Floyd County coroner, Jane Proctor. That request had been ignored. that you have not heard anything from Gene Proctor. Uh, did you make a, an official Georgia Open Records request for his information? I did. And I talked to him briefly, actually, and uh-huh. he never followed up. I know that our assistant's trying to follow, follow up with him now because we never heard anything more. Well, he only has three days to comply with that Georgia Open Records request. See, Floyd County doesn't believe in that. (laughs) We have had the hardest time getting anything. Well, it doesn't matter what Floyd County believes. Georgia law states. I would, you know, if I was in your shoes, I would go back and say Georgia Open Records law requires a response within three days or a valid reason why you've not responded. I know there's wiggle room there, but, uh, you know, I I never fail to respond to one. Well, I found that most people in Floyd County don't have that philosophy. Unfortunately. Well, that's, that's sad. Yeah. You know, we have yet to get a single document from the DA's office about anything. That's sad. Their response is either they've lost the files or else they just don't respond at all. Well, just follow the chain of custody receipt and see who's got it. I mean, you have to sign the records in and sign the records out. They can't even find those. Mm, I'm going to say that's bullshit. On this point, at least, Craig Burns and I agree. But once again, I was on the Floyd County merry-go-round, where you can't get any answers because some other agency has them. Only that other agency doesn't have the answers either, because they gave them to someone else. But Gene should absolutely have have that in a, in a filing cabinet somewhere, or it should be in records retention. In my opinion, he's not giving you the attention it deserves. I'd love to read my notes that Gene has, but I can promise you he's been told not to release them. In addition to the coroner's files, We'd also been trying to get records from the investigation into Craig Burns himself. Technically, the DA's office only has three days to respond to a records request. 
But even though we'd been exchanging emails, after five months, we still hadn't gotten the documents from the DA's office. So we pared down our request, hoping that might help move it along. I'm just curious what's in there. And now I'm more curious when Lee Patterson stopped responding. Why does she not want to give it over to us? Uh, my gut feeling is someday somebody will put two and two together. But I have, I have stopped fighting it. Last week, the Floyd County DA's office finally got back to us. They let us know they had the documents we'd requested. A small portion of the Craig Burns file would be made available. Susan and I happened to be down in Rome, so we said we'd drop by the DA's office to pick them up in person. The files that we picked up from the DA's office are a little underwhelming. For instance, one of our requests was for a copy of all records of interviews done in the course of the investigation into Craig Burns. But in the files we were given, there's a summary of an interview from exactly one witness. Still, these records gave us a little more insight into the investigation into Craig Burns. Like, for instance, what had caused Burns to be investigated in the first place? When Susan spoke to Burns, he told her the investigation had been politically motivated. The DA at the time, Tammy Colston, he said, hadn't liked him. But uh, Tammy just always had it out for me uh, because I was trying to improve the coroner's office. I was trying to improve death investigations. I turned down the county's offer of a government office in the courthouse because I didn't want nobody to be able to have their thumb on me. I didn't want nobody to be able to say, well, we've done this for you, you do this for us. Listen to the 48 Hours podcast for shocking murder cases and compelling real-life dramas from one of television's most watched true crime shows. Go behind the scenes of each episode with award-winning CBS News correspondents and producers in Postmortem, a weekly deep dive. Listen to 48 Hours wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. The files show this is not why Burns was investigated. 
although apparently complaints about Burns had first been made in January of 1998, the same month he testified at Lee's and Kane's trial, it was actually the U.S. Secret Service that had kicked off the investigation, not Floyd County. The Secret Service is part of the Department of the Treasury, and in addition to protecting the president, they also investigate certain financial crimes. And in May of 1998, they were investigating Burns for credit card fraud. Burns was employed by a funeral home chain that had a few locations in Rome, and he was using his employer's credit card processing machine to transfer $56,000 to his own accounts. Two months later, the Floyd County Police Department formally opened its own investigation into Craig Burns' conduct as coroner. Investigators began looking into complaints that Burns had been issuing bills to the families of people who had died in Floyd County. He was charging them for the services he provided as coroner. These bills were bogus. The families owed nothing to Craig Burns. He was paid by the county. He earned a fixed fee of $100 for every death that he accepted jurisdiction over. But many of the families who received these bills didn't know that. One of the bills Burns issued was to the mother of a man who had died of bacterial meningitis. When the mother explained to him that she didn't have the money to pay him, Burns had responded with the following. Discount authorized by coroner Craig Burns. Dear Mr. and Mrs. Williams, knowing that you are faced with this bill and knowing that it is a large amount, I want to help you with it as much as I can. I've taken 50% off this bill and paid it for you with money I had in my coroner budget for when such cases arise as this has. The balance will be your responsibility and may be paid any way you like by the month. I'm sorry to have caused you such an increase in your debts to pay, but we needed to get the answers to the questions you were asking me when James died. Unfortunately, this type of testing was the only way to do so. Even in murder cases, Burns didn't pass up on the opportunity to earn some cash. In one homicide case, the victim had been sent to the GBI crime lab to be autopsied, which is a service provided to the county free of charge. There's no cost to the county for it. And yet Burns had sent a bill to the murder victim's family, payable to his personal bank account. Burns wasn't just stealing from families. He was stealing from the county, too. The investigation found that between January of 97 and September of 98, Craig Burns had charged the county for 166 post-mortem examinations by the local medical examiner, examinations which were never actually performed. The county would issue checks to the medical examiner to pay for these services, but Burns would intercept the checks and deposit them into his own account. And since the medical examiner had never performed these exams in the first place, he wasn't expecting any payment for them, and didn't realize it when the checks went missing. I didn't have the DA's records when I spoke to Craig Burns, but I'd known about these charges, and I'd asked him about it. The investigation into you, I know that there were something to do with autopsy reports um, or death investigations that were not done. They wouldn't give me the file, so I actually don't know too much about your case. Um, But I know that was one of the allegations made. That was, that's never been mentioned to me. That the, that there were, so one of the reports that we do have says that there's an issue with autopsies being billed for that weren't performed. That got into the local medical examiner that I had appointed at the time did not complete his paperwork and then he denied that he had done those external exams for me. So you'd referred them and then he didn't perform them? Uh, He claims he didn't perform them. I think his documentation is what was bad. And, and he turned around and left town. I just, I had poor judgment in who I chose as my local medical examiner. We had been hoping that the files from the Craig Burns investigation might contain records about his handling of the Brian Bowling case. 
Unfortunately, the investigative file notes that it only covers the period from 1997 to 1998, which means that the bowling case from 1996 was not part of the investigation. And anyway, even if the investigation had covered the 1996 time period, it's not clear what records investigators would have actually found. Because there's a note in the file about what happened when investigators obtained a search warrant and presented it to Craig Burns. At the time officers searched defendant's home, defendant said to Sergeant Carney, quote, you will not find what you were looking for. I've known for two weeks that this search warrant was coming, end quote. Defendant also stated that he was glad that he still had a friend in the police department. Also present at the time these statements were made was Dallas Battle and David Stewart. When the search warrant was served on Craig Burns, he informed the investigators that, coincidentally, his computer had recently crashed. The entire hard drive had to be replaced. Oops. So if the documents investigators were looking for were on that hard drive, they were gone now. The records we have about the Craig Burns case are still spotty, but the most important question I had for Craig Burns didn't need any documents for him to answer. What I needed to know from him was the name of the substance that had been applied to the gunshot wound in Brian Bowling's head. Once I knew for sure what the substance was, I could find out whether or not it was possible for it to have caused the blackened appearance of the wound. So I've showed these photos to some doctors and some uh, police officers, and they looked at it and said, that looks like a contact wound to me. And, uh, To them, it looks like that the black in there is burning, or soot, or something caused by high heat. Well, if I had saw, or if I see tearing of the skin, where the gas gets up under the skin, then you can, and I saw stippling, then I would say, yes, a different type of wound would be a, a close contact wound, but I don't see a tearing of the skin. I see a more of a circular wound here. And even today, 25 years later, if I was looking at that, the first thing that would not come to my mind would be a contact wound. Is there always skin tearing, though, with a contact wound? All that I've ever seen that have been contact wounds have had skin tearing. Okay. So if you were there with Dallas Battle trying to figure out what happened to this boy, you would look at the lack of the, the skin tearing. I would have, and yes. If Dallas and I were there, and, I'm, and you're telling me that, I would probably say to Dallas, this looks like a distance shot to me. Craig Burns told me that he does not recall what he and Dallas Battle talked about at the funeral home. But, he said, based on the lack of tearing around the gunshot wound to Brian's head, he would have concluded that Brian had been killed by a shot fired from a distance. We asked medical examiner and forensic pathologist Dr. Eric Peters about Burns' conclusion. You know, a, a, a little revolver is not exactly a high-powered weapon, so you don't necessarily have to have tearing of the wound. So if someone shoots themselves right dead center in the middle of the forehead, invariably whatever type of weapon it is will cause a, a, a stellate tear in the temple area is a little bit more play in there as far as soft tissue so like i said o- often more often than not a contact wound will have some tearing at the entrance uh, have you seen um like suicides or other contact head wounds that did not have tearing yeah i have Skin tearing around contact gunshot wounds is often but not always present with contact shots to the head. Burns' determination that the lack of tearing meant Brian had to have been killed by a shot fired from a distance is just factually wrong. Even though that seems to have been the basis of his and Sergeant Battle's conclusion that Brian had been murdered. And that still leaves the question as to why the inside of the gunshot wound has that blackened appearance that you'd expect from a contact shot. I'm curious what the hardening compound was that would cause that coloration. The hardening compound that comes from the trade house for embalmers would be a white type substance. It's usually white powder. Then if it's placed into a wound, it absorbs the fluid. 
So what you would have is the the hardening compound would be the color of blood that has dried, blood that has deoxygenated, and the serum off of the blood, which is a clear fluid. The hardening compound itself is not that color. So to my eye, it's a, it's a really black color. It looks burned to me. Mm-hmm. Um, does that look like a normal appearance of hardening compound, or is that how usually it would react to old blood? Or Well, if it was successfully packed with hardening compound and allowed to congeal, I would I could certainly see that there that that wound would have hardening compound in it. Okay, so to you that looks like hardening compound. To me, that looks like it could have hardening compound in it. I understand what you're talking about the tissue being charred, but with me being at the funeral home and having the opportunity to know what they had done to the wound or what had not been done to the wound. That's how I would come to my conclusion that that is hardening compound. To get some insight on what Craig Burns had told me, I spoke to Dominic Astorino, funeral director, embalmer, and professor of mortuary science. Professor Astorino is the embalmer that other embalmers call when they have a job that they don't know how to handle. He specializes in trauma cases and is very familiar with how funeral homes prepare bodies for viewing when they've had gunshot wounds to the head and face. And when I showed him the photos that Craig Burns had taken of Brian Bowling's body from the funeral home, he saw something that everyone else had missed. He, he's all embalmed. He's already embalmed in all these photos. In all of them? Mm-hmm. The photos Coroner Burns took of Brian's body, the ones with the rod through the gunshot wound and that everyone mistakes for autopsy photos, these were taken after Brian's body had been fully embalmed. Well, the embalming's done, but uh, the cosmetic work has not yet been done. So it's a two-step process for sure. I asked Astorino what he thought about Burns' testimony about what had caused the blackened appearance of the gunshot wound. It seemed to me like he probably wasn't there and uh, probably doesn't do a whole lot of the work himself and was told what to say because the appearance of the wound, that's not caused by by packing powder. Um, I, I believe it was caused by another thing that we do in embalming. Professor Astorino told me that the blackened appearance was in no way caused by some kind of granulated substance or hardening powder. But it was likely caused by a certain embalming technique. What you're looking at in that photo is, again, we have to get the tissue firm and dry because eventually they're going to put wax over that wound and then put cosmetics over the wax and the skin to get it all to blend. In order for that to work, the skin and the inside of the wound has to be cauterized and dry. So what we do is we introduce, uh, it's usually a liquid chemical soaked in cotton, like phenolic acid, um, carbolic acid that works to cauterize the wound. So the burned appearance in the gunshot wound, could that have been caused by soot deposited from a contact wound? Well, that we can't tell. There may have been soot and charring inside the gunshot wound, or there may not have been. These photos can't tell us either way, because they were taken after Brian's body had been substantially altered by the embalming process. The wound has already been cauterized, and the edges of the wound have already been trimmed away and clean. So if you you compare that, the picture is not good because it's 30 years old. So if the skin had been torn around the bullet hole, would they have trimmed it up? Yeah, the proper protocol is to trim away any jagged or unembalmed edges. Just look at the, the entrance. This is the entrance wound right here. It's got an appearance of... It's wet and it's jagged. So they definitely cleaned it up once it was cauterized so they can wax over it and make it lie flush and level. So it's possible the skin was torn. That's very interesting. Well, it's, I mean, it's here, the skin's lacerated right here. So the, the perfect route entrance, it didn't occur to me that the embalmer or the whoever was cleaning the body could have done that. At trial, Craig Burns never mentioned that when he and Dallas Battle had inspected Brian's body, it had already been embalmed. But Burns had to have known that. He also had to have known that the blackened appearance of the gunshot wound had nothing to do with hardening compound. So what, this guy, was he is a funeral director. He should have been mm-hmm. familiar with basic practices. So why is he calling this hardening compound? 
I don't know. Based on what he said at trial, Professor Astorino would assume Craig Burns didn't have any real embalming experience because no licensed embalmer would have made this error. I mean, just the real thing that stood out was the the underqualifications of the person making these these determinations, and that was before I knew he was a criminal. Craig Burns really was a licensed embalmer, though. He really did have years of experience preparing bodies. He would have recognized what had actually caused the blackened appearance of the gunshot wound. So why would he have come up with a story about the hardening compound? Well, maybe because if he'd told the truth, if he'd explained in court what had really caused the blackened appearance, that would have been explaining that Brian's body had been fully embalmed before he and Sergeant Battle went in to examine it. Still, even then, even after the embalming, all of the important questions in this case could still have been answered if Burns had simply requested an autopsy. So the discharge goes off and then you see the soot and everything embedded into the bone. You don't have, at least I don't have the pictures of, of the bone. They did not take any. They, they yeah, just... with, without an autopsy, it's gonna be really unlikely, but that's what you would expect to see, tattooing into the bone. So that brings us back to the question we started with. Why wasn't there an autopsy done in this case? It doesn't make any sense that Craig Burns would have failed to do an autopsy or failed to pretend to do an autopsy because that would have deprived him of an opportunity to bill someone for it, especially in a case where literally everyone wanted an autopsy to be done. Based on what we've learned about Craig Burns' brand of corruption, the fact that Brian Bowling wasn't autopsied made even less sense than it had to begin with. But recently, we got a chance to speak again with Brian's uncle, Michael Baker, and to ask him questions we hadn't known to ask the first time we spoke to him. I remember when we first talked to you, we were surprised that all of y'all assumed an autopsy had been done. I was kind of thinking maybe y'all requested one not be done, because yeah. I couldn't imagine why else there wouldn't have been right. an autopsy. We were told over and over and over that it was done. Mm -hmm. And that's what we were being told by the police department and the funeral home. What did the funeral home tell you? We had called about the funeral because that's when they had told us that Josh was involved. So we had told them to uh, hold the arrangements and they told us that the body was still at the state crime lab. Brian's family remembers being told repeatedly that Brian was being autopsied. They had no reason to doubt that's what had happened. And then after that, did y'all ever get like confirmation that the autopsy had been done? We received a bill for it. <laughs> it was like $7,500. Did your family ultimately pay the bill to, to Craig? We did. We did pay the bill. As county coroner, Craig Burns sometimes falsely billed for autopsies that had never been done. And sometimes he falsely billed for autopsies that had actually happened, but for which the families of the deceased hadn't owed a thing. We still don't know which scenario happened with Brian. We don't know if Craig Burns was billing for an autopsy he never had done, or for an autopsy that was performed, but for which no report or record was ever disclosed. The only thing Brian's family ever remembers seeing is the bill. Was it your parents that ultimately paid the bill? Yes, ma'am. My mom and dad. Um, I think you mentioned that they tried to offer to use the life insurance policy. Yes, and they wouldn't take the life insurance policy. Did they give you a reason? They did not. They, and they did say that the state would pay $250 is all that the state pays for the autopsy. The rest was on us. Can you explain that to me? Because I don't know that I've heard this about using the life insurance money. Yeah, we asked them because my mom had some life insurance on all the grandkids. And they asked if we could use one of those policies to pay for the autopsy. And they were advised they could not. I wonder if he was concerned that he wouldn't get paid if he did that. Or some kind of a paper trail, maybe. I wonder if he if he was worried that 
if the death was ruled accidental, he might not get paid out. That's possible, yeah. I also, that, that's a very good point. I've never even thought about it that direction. So, because life insurance we usually won't pay for a suicide. When Brian Bowling died, his family wasn't just left to deal with the loss of their son, brother, grandson, and nephew. Like a lot of families in Floyd County, because of Craig Burns, they were left with the loss of a loved one and also a hefty financial obligation. After episode 12 of this podcast came out with the interview with Angela Bruce, Michael Baker called me. We hadn't spoken since my last trip to Rome, but he told me there was something he thought I should know. Angela Bruce isn't lying about what happened, he said. I know she's not lying. Because I was there when investigators first told us about the new witness they had in Brian's case. Dallas and David both told us, you know, that she had come forward saying that she had overheard him saying that, asked him to leave the party, but that she didn't want to testify. And then so it got my sister really upset. It's like, well, what are we going to do? And they're like, well, don't worry about it because we've got other things on her that we could take her kids if she does not testify. So that, during all that story, I mean, it hit me hard right there. At the time, Michael Baker had thought that investigators had found a way to convince a reluctant witness to testify to what she knew. But listening to her episode, Michael realized that the investigators' threats wouldn't have just compelled Angela Bruce to appear at trial. They would have also compelled her to testify in whichever way the investigators had wanted. Oh, so yeah. They were just holding her kids against her to make her say what That's they wanted right. them to say. The cops in Florida County are crooked. Crooked. If the jury had known what we know now about the evidence in this case, it is difficult to see how they could have convicted Lee Clark and Kane Story. There was no Freebird gang. Angela Bruce never heard Lee or Kane confess to murder. Charlie Childers did not see Lee outside the bowling's trailer. Neither Lee nor Kane had any motive to hurt Brian. And for that matter, neither did Brian's girlfriend, Caprice. The blue pillow had nothing to do with anything. And the state's entire theory that Brian Bowling did not kill himself was based on the personal, non-expert opinion of a discredited coroner who observed Brian's gunshot wound after he'd been embalmed. So the new evidence you've heard on this podcast clearly would have mattered if it was introduced at trial. But it's far too late for that. So does any of it matter now? Well, maybe. But once you've been convicted of a crime, challenging that conviction is an uphill battle all the way. And without legal representation, it's essentially impossible. Which is why, when I began investigating this case, I told Lee that he should apply again to the Georgia Innocence Project. Yeah, I said, I remember back in the day I wrote them, and they wrote me, sent me back a letter, told me that they couldn't help me because the case wasn't being they related. Yeah, they've only recently changed their um, their rules on that. It's like past a oh, couple yeah, of years. That. So that that's why... But yeah, they would never have been able to consider your case until pretty recently. In the years since Lee first applied to them, GIP, the Georgia Innocence Project, has expanded their criteria for the kinds of cases they're able to take on. And I thought Lee's case might be one they'd be interested in. Try applying to them again, I told him. A few months later, I got a phone call from Lee. Hey. Hello? Susan? Yep. Well, uh, I just wanted to call you and let you know that... I just got off the phone this morning with the George Innocent Project, and they're getting ready to start their investigation. GIP accepted Lee Clark as a client and will represent him in his efforts to overturn his conviction. Yeah, they called me. I was, I was asleep. <laughs> I was over in the bed asleep. It was about uh, 8 o'clock this morning. I was over knocked out, and uh, they come here calling my name. I sit up, and I was looking up crazy. They gave me the pass. I was you got to go to intake. you got to turn a phone call this morning. I said, oh, what? I looked at the paper, I said, attorney phone call. I said, what's this about? It hadn't been confused, because I wasn't expecting to hear from them. Then I got up there and they called in and uh, got on the phone with her and she wasn't explaining to me all the process and all that stuff. And I don't know, she tricked me out this morning. <laughs> but it, it was great though. I tell you, it made my day.
The Georgia Innocence Project is currently working on Lee's case, and they hope that before too long, he'll be back in court again. If and when that happens, we'll be back as well to update you on developments. So while this is the final episode of season one of Proof that covers our investigation, it's not our last episode about Lee's and Kane's case. In fact, we have two bonus episodes coming up with a very special episode next Monday that you won't want to miss. There will also be a sidebar on Thursday, so don't forget to send us your questions. Also, because Kane's story was Lee's co-defendant, under conflict of interest rules, the Georgia Innocence Project is not allowed to represent him as well. That means that Kane is currently without legal counsel. So if there happen to be any Georgia attorneys out there who are looking for a new pro bono case to take on, let us know. We'd be happy to put you in touch with him. You've been listening to Proof, a podcast by Red Marble Media. We'll be back next Monday for episode 15. Send us your questions at proofcrimepod at gmail.com. We'll respond during our bonus episodes, Proof Sidebar, on Thursdays. Kevin Fitzpatrick is our executive producer. Our logo was designed by Drew Hosuski. And our theme music is by Ramiro Marquez. Audio production for this episode is by George Panos and Michael Yulatowski. Production assistance provided by Jude Slava. Our social media manager is Skylar Park. Thank you to our sponsors for making it possible for us to come back week after week. Follow us everywhere with the handle at ProofCrimePod and on our website, ProofCrimePod.com. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening.